Hi, um, we're privileged this morning to have Jonah Hooper with us. He's going to be uh, preaching God's word to us from Acts. I um, want to introduce him to you guys. Jonah is the RUF campus minister, the uh, campus pastor at Winston-Salem State. He planted this uh, ministry five years ago and uh, through COVID. And um, yeah, uh, RUF, as you guys know, I'm connected to them and have served with them in the past. And just, yeah, I'm privileged to have you here with us. And also Jonah's family's here and um, some of his, his, I think his intern and his campus uh, ministry assistant and mm-hmm. some students are here. Yeah. So please welcome them as well. And Thanks for preaching for us this morning, brother. Love you. Well, grace and peace, fam. I'm so grateful to be with you. Uh, I want to be quick to express my gratitude, of course, to uh, my brother Harrison and uh, each of you for uh, the privilege to open God's word with you. Uh, As he said, I'm here with my wife, Shadia, and my son, Jonah, but my oldest daughter, uh, my oldest is my daughter, Naraya. Naraya is studying in Italy this summer. Um, And at least she's supposed to be uh, because I'm starting to wonder because every time she sends me pictures, she's eating something fancy or taking pictures by the water. (laughs) And somehow in the middle of the night, I keep getting these notifications on my credit card going up and up. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) pray for me. (laughs) But uh, I... (laughs) As we said, my my staff is here with me, my brother Trayvon and Christina, my intern. And um, I got at least one student. Sydney, where you at? Hey, girl. And Krista is here, Um, my president. I'm so grateful, man, to see them is always a tremendous blessing. Um, But know, man, that uh, uh, we'd love to talk to you more after service about our ministry and the work that we're doing on campus and ways that you can support us. Uh, So please make sure you check us out after worship. Um, But theologian N.T. Wright says that the final chapters here in Acts answer the question of what Paul is all about. It, of course, comes to us as uh, a second edition from Luke and is written as a defense for uh, the Apostle Paul's trial in Rome. And so it's written with factual detail, which is helpful because then it's not just these stories of miscellaneous, disconnected uh, realities of the church, but it is this concise, focused narrative of what Paul has been up to. And chapters 25 and 26 are closely connected and they join the storytelling of how it is that we get to this point. And see, the, the people see Paul as having some some severe sense of disloyalty. And he gets arrested for what they see as as flaunting that disloyalty. But here in chapter 25, Festus, who becomes the new governor of the region, and he wants to establish himself as the authority. He meets with uh, the religious leaders, And they begin to bombard him with accusations against this dude named Paul. It's almost as if that they had hoped that this transition of power would allow them an opportunity to get rid of anyone who opposed them. The reality is that what they really wanted was for Paul's trial to be moved, it says, so that they could, in his transport, ambush and kill him. Festus, though, is... He's not trying to hear this uh, because he wanted to be known for his own authoritative presence in chapter 25. But 
when he hears Paul speak and he recognizes that, that he had done nothing worthy of these charges. But he wants, of course, to appease the temple leaders, so he asks Paul if he wants to be sent to Jerusalem. And Paul, knowing there they'd only just kill him, says, Festus, buddy, I ain't going up there. In fact, I'm going to see Caesar. It couldn't have been a better time for Agrippa and Bernice to show up, though, because uh, it says that Festus has essentially no idea what in the world is going on. And so he tells them that he's been pushed for Paul's death, but knows that this is not the Roman way. And this brings us to what we see here in chapter 26 as, as the gathering of Festus and Agrippa and Bernice and the military leaders from around the city to hear Paul defend himself once again. In this first verse, Agrippa tells Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And though this is our first time meeting Agrippa in the story, he feels almost eerily familiar. Because he's actually one of two biblical figures with the name who are father and son. The father we see in Acts 12 and here in chapters 25 and 26 is his son. The Romans had appointed both of them. And historically, we know that they ruled with violence, which shouldn't surprise us because their grandfather, who was Herod, in Matthew's gospel has all the male children murdered in an effort to rid of the promised Messiah. And their uncle John has John the Baptist killed. But in Acts 12, the father and seeking to stop the spread of this new Christian movement has both James and Peter put in prison. And in his refusal to honor God, it says that he is struck down by an angel and eaten by worms. Of course, this kind of history seemingly makes the tension of Scripture even more intense. Paul, though, is called to make a defense and so in my in-depth experience of watching episodes of Dateline in 2020, I can tell you that any valid defense in this way must begin with crafting a compelling narrative. This narrative must communicate the essential truths. It must provide a collection of evidence that refutes the reports made against you by corroborating your story. It then requires knowledge. Knowledge of the laws is as often the inability to meet the standards required is a compelling way to refute what has been said against you. But it also then must bring light against the darkness as often what is unsaid simply means to be illuminated by truth. So that you only then can fight for what you know to be right. You know, with this kind of legal insight, I might turn out to be the Black Perry Mason after all. But um, still, in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, and you know if you got that, that means you're old. But in 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16, uh, we are told to honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
Know, fam, that here in chapter 26, Paul is demonstrating exactly that for us. And Paul continues, he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. It's remarkable to see the way that Paul considers even this instance a gift to share the gospel. And while we don't tend to think of joy and suffering as going hand in hand, I can assure you that in God's economy, our lives are full of both joy and suffering. Let us not forget that we too are called to pick up the cross and follow Jesus. So even for Paul, as he stands as a witness in chains, his hope is simply to point others to know him. Especially since fresh on his mind had to be this message from Romans that therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith and to this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in verses four and five, Paul continues, he says, he says, my manner of life from my youth spent from beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time. And if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Clearly, this is a message to the haters in the room to remind them that I'm not new to this, I'm true to this, because Paul was raised in Jerusalem and to be brought up as a Pharisee, which would have allowed him to have the most significant academic achievement of the day and the law to which they claimed that he had abandoned. He says, actually, I know this well. To be a Pharisee was a life of religious piety. Strict adherence to the law because the word Pharisee itself means to be separated. So they believe that their traditions were just as valuable as scripture itself. And yet Paul recognized the fallacy of this because he tells the church in Galatians that no one is justified by the law, but by faith. So in verses six and seven, Paul says, I stand here on trial because my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this, I am accused by Jews, O King. Notice that Paul says the real reason that I'm here is because of hope. Hope is foundational to our faith. And yet real hope is difficult for many of us. It's difficult because we wrestle with doubt. We find doubt in our salvation. We find doubt in being truly loved. We, we doubt in our trust in God. 
And because we doubt, we're fighting over and over again with shame and guilt and our pride and our greed are eating us alive. And we're living far from the confidence and assurance of our saving grace in Jesus. So the psalmist says in 16 and 9 that therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. And my flesh also dwells secure. And I can promise you that nothing in this world will give you that kind of peace and security that we have in Jesus. The life filled with hope in Jesus alone can allow you to even in chains stand before the rulers and authorities of our world and boldly witness of him. And so Paul says, it's it's because of this hope in me that I stand accused. So I pray this morning that you know this same great hope. A hope found only in Jesus, a hope for all ages, the one who is the sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, our only hope for salvation. And I need you to see this, fam, because if this is true, know that the one thing Paul is openly guilty of is resting in the one true hope that is Jesus. So then in verse 8, one of my favorite lines in all of Scripture, because ultimately he defers from himself and asks, why is it thought incredible of any of you that God raises the dead? I love this because it's almost as if the door opens and you know that the gospel is coming. And so in a room full of folks who question the validity of everything Paul believed, he calls them to faith. Know, too, that this statement also then exposes the truth behind those who had accused Paul, because while they wanted Paul to be seen as political opposition, Paul makes known that what they're really fighting is a theological argument that has nothing to do with riots or defiling the temple or even teaching others not to follow the law. But the real source of conflict, Paul says, is Jesus. So again, in verses 9 through 18, Paul's goes back through his story of coming to faith in Jesus. And I love to say over and over again the way that there is so much great delight in my work as a pastor to college students and being reminded day after day that Jesus is still showing up in the lives of these students. Just as he does here in the Apostle Paul. His story reveals that he too shared their unbelief and he opposed the name of Jesus so much so that he worked to see many bound and even approved that some were put to death. But this is not the end of the story for Paul, though, because in verses 19 through 20, Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. And in case you hadn't noticed it, Paul's defense of his actions is real simple. He says, I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. Paul says, 
that it's in obedience that he went to Damascus and that he went on to Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles as a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody named Jesus. I'm convinced that Paul defends himself in this way because he recognizes that it's not he alone who stands accused, but the gospel itself as the message that united the people of God as the church. So I hope then that this message is an encouragement to you that despite your trials and your sufferings, you would cling to Jesus. Verse 21 is as straightforward as it gets because Paul says, this is why they really try to kill me. The gospel, this message of beauty and splendor, of loveliness and grandeur in which you and I created in his likeness and image, though fallen into the depths of sinful depravity, have been redeemed by the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross for the remission of sin so that he could say to this day, I have had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Here, Paul echoes Psalms 121 as God alone has been the source of his help and has allowed him then to endure. And this should be a helpful reminder that all of the scriptures point us to Jesus. The prophetic voices of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ alone. And what stands true is despite our sinful rebellion, we serve a God who is faithful. God who is both fully God and fully man, the second member of the Trinity who comes as the atoning sacrifice for our sin, faithfully fulfilling the law and the prophets. Look what we do at verse 24 to 27. It says, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped this notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. See, in the middle of Paul speaking, he's interrupted by Festus. He says, Paul, boy, you you must be crazy. And though you'd expect him to, Paul doesn't respond emotionally with any brash words for Festus. He says, man, I'm, I'm not crazy. And actually, what I'm speaking is both true and it's rational. But then he, t- he turns again to address Agrippa. You know, d- despite Agrippa's history, Paul knew that truth hadn't escaped him. 
So even at this moment, he calls Agrippa the king himself to faith in Jesus. Which is why in verses 28 and 29, we see Agrippa respond to you. He says, man, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul says, man, whether it's it's short or long, I would to God that, that not only you, but all of you here would become such as I am. Except for these changes. As a preacher, there's nothing like standing to preach the gospel and seeing God's people respond in faith. And as I thought about being with you this morning, I I couldn't put into words the way that this message impacted me. As a pastor, I want to be the chief in repentance and, and to be honest about the way that even true for me is this idol of comfort. And there is nothing in this world that I love more than being well-liked and loved by everyone I meet. And so often I I refuse to speak and, and I fail to encourage and engage people because I'm afraid of rejection. So even opportunities for me to tell others of the saving grace of Jesus get lost. So who were you afraid of? Who at your work or in your school or even in your home needs you, see you even in your chains, tell them the good news of Jesus. In verses 30 through 32, Agrippa Bernice and Festus confer with the others and they agree on Paul's innocence. And actually it says if he hadn't appealed to Caesar already that he could have been freed, but Paul was on a mission to see the promises of God fulfilled. And maybe even more clearly than ever before did Paul understand his commitment to the spread of the gospel even if he knew that the ultimate consequence of his life would not be spared. Paul stood before the rulers of his day to boldly make much of Jesus. And this is a call, of course, that each of us share. But where... Where does this kind of strength come from? I think it comes from knowing that one day we'll stand before the throne of God above. And we'll have a strong and perfect plea because there is a great high priest whose name is love who ever lives and pleads for me. In fact, my name is graven in his hands and written on his heart, and I can rest knowing that while heaven stands, nothing, absolutely nothing, Paul says, nothing can separate us. Absolutely nothing.
Father, we thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart have not fallen on deaf ears, but are edifying for the good of your people and the glory of your great name. And I pray, Father, that that in the days of head, that they would be filled with great joy and grace and peace because you are ever and always with us. We pray this in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Y'all be blessed.